We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. With me in the studio today is Nikki Chung. Uh, I can't keep a smile out of my voice because she is my entire heart. Uh, She is a former business partner of mine, and uh, we used to run a website together called The Toast, and now we are just pals, and I love her, and she's wonderful, and I want to hear her opinion about everything in the world. Nikki, hi. Welcome. Hi, Mal. I love you, too. Oh, I also forgot to do your actual formal introduction, which is that you are the former managing editor at The Toast, and you are currently an editor at Catapult. So now you've been formally introduced. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you feel about, like, telling everyone how to live their lives? What's what's your approach going to be? Are you going to be gentle, compassionate? Are you going to bring some tough love to the table? Are you going to be whimsical? Have you thought much about what you want people to do at your behest? (laughs) I have not thought too much about my overall advice-giving approach, uh, but I am really excited to offer opinions, uh, as always. I'm thrilled to be here with you in particular. Um, Would you please be so good as to read our very first letter, Roommate from Heck? Absolutely. Dear Prudence, my roommate is kind of a jerk. 
I moved into his condo a couple of years ago, expecting to help him cover his mortgage and assist him as a friend. Cue my realization that he's messy and unprepared to shoulder the responsibility of owning property. He leaves disgusting dishes in the sink for weeks at a time, doesn't sweep or mop, and then complains when I do laundry or have a fan on in my bedroom because he believes it drives up the power bills enormously. But he leaves lights and AC on all the time. It's gotten to the point where I spent a whole day just cleaning his condo from top to bottom on my own. To be clear, I don't ever use the common space, and when I do, I leave it tidy. Another point to be clear on, this isn't some different standard of cleanliness because my friends have seen the place and agree it's disgusting. I can't move because of financial issues, but is there something I can do to alleviate the stress I feel? Man, so part of what is always hard about letters like this is I feel like there's sort of an eternal battle between people who live together in terms of what their definition of a clean house is and what's like an acceptable condition for the house to generally be in. And it often feels like the person who cares the least kind of always wins, right? Yeah, it's sort of like, right, it sort of falls to that like lowest standard. Yeah, and, and you kind of have to come to terms as the person who does not like that person's standards. How much work am I willing to put in either in trying to get them to meet me in the middle, uh, which is hard to do because they kind of don't care, uh, or picking up all the slack on my own and figuring out how do I do that without wanting to stab them with a screwdriver, Yeah, which is, you know, a a fate I want to protect everyone from. Right. Like some people are, are just very comfortable living in a messy house. And like if it's just them or if they're living with someone who's also good with it there's not a problem. Like being messy is not a moral failing. I think the problem is when you live together after a certain amount of time, every little slight starts to feel like a moral, like personal attack. Um, Yeah. Well, and certainly I think when, when you are sharing your living space with somebody else and they've made it really clear that like old rotting food, crusted dishes in the sink are not okay for them. It does become, I think at least falls on a moral continuum just in terms of um, you are not behaving with compassion and empathy and general respect for the other person. So no, being a messy person does not mean you're a bad person, but this definitely I think falls into the category of um, a bummer at the very least. I was amazed the writer's been putting up with this for like a couple of years now in like bad roommate years. That's like a millennium, give or take. Yes. Like that's a well, really it long sounds time. Like, it kind of sounds like there's a little more than just the messiness going on, right? It, it, there's yeah. the, I moved into his condo to help him cover his mortgage and assist him as a friend, which is vague and confusing. Like, yeah. what does that mean? Like, was he going through a difficult time? Do you feel like it's your job as his friend to make sure he's taking care of himself? Like, there's something going on there. Yeah. I uh, and then question. there's also the letter writer later refers to after having living in lived in this place for a couple of years i was cleaning his condo from top to bottom and right. i don't ever use the common space which is kind of cinderella esque right like you still think of it as his home not yours like sure he owns it and you're paying rent but like you guys are both equally living there yeah. um, and like you're not using the living room or the kitchen and i'm kind of curious is it just because it's always so messy or are you at a point in your relationship where you kind of feel like the only place in the house that's comfortable and okay for you is your bedroom cuz that's that's a real bummer absolutely like you know i i too got the sense that the letter writer was sort of hiding out in their room and i think if you've had a bad roommate then you know like they're it just gets to a point where you try and be like anywhere else. Um, right. But in the space or in this person's company. And, you know, I did notice that 
uh, they describe the person as a friend. And then after a while, like uh, it's just the roommate. And so it sort of makes it sound, I could be reading too much into it, but it sort of makes it sound like their friendship hasn't survived living together, which is sad and also kind of makes sense given the situation um, and how stressful it is. Yeah. So, you know, the letter writer says that moving out is not a possibility because of financial issues. So I would say long term, your strategy should probably be getting to a place where it is financially viable for you to move out. Right. Like, so save up as much money as you can be just kind of constantly on the lookout for, you know, cheaper housing. Um, Ask around your other friends whose houses you've been to and that don't feel like upsetting pigsties. Um, Right. You know, start putting out feelers, start doing that work so that you at least have that pressure release of, I am looking for somewhere else to live. Because it just sounds like you're taking on a lot of responsibility for this guy. He doesn't really appreciate it. Um, He's pretty inconsiderate. He's weirdly hypocritical about like, oh, don't do the laundry, but I am going to leave the lights on all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I think you should be working on getting out of there. Uh, But, you know, in the short term, in terms of living together, like, what's your take on this? Is it just like, just suck it up and do all this stuff because he's never going to? Or do you think there's another way that this letter writer can try to get their roommate to meet them a little bit closer to the middle? So the letter doesn't really say, I think, I think it doesn't say like what sort of conversations they've already had about it. Um, You know, having outbursts or sort of trading like passive aggressive or just aggressive words about it, like when you feel someone's abusing the electricity use is not the same as like a calm non-acrimonious, open conversation. Um, I don't want to make it sound too obvious. Like, I assume the letter writer has tried that, but it's maybe worth trying to open it up again and recognize, you know, you have to kind of pick what's most important to you because someone probably isn't going to do a complete about face and change all their living habits all at once. Um, so like, what are the, the absolute top priorities? What would make living there a little more bearable? You know, is it something like dishes done within a certain amount of time, no comments on your laundry or, you know, would it help if they sort of came up with like an absolute, like, these are my really top priorities. This is what I need to feel like comfortable in my own home. And then of course, my other thought was if anyone is open to hiring someone to come in and help clean, which I know is expensive, but it seems like a really reasonable request if your roommate really won't clean anything to say, and you're paying him rent, right? So it seems reasonable to say, okay, I will do this or I will hire somebody, but that should be reflected in what I pay each month. You know, something could be taken out of the rent that you're paying. Oh, that would be good too, because, you know, if they said that like trying to move right now is hard because of finances, that might be a good sort of way of uh, accommodating it so they're not just shelling out more cash. But I do absolutely agree, like long term, the healthiest thing is to try and change the living situation. Um, And maybe, you know, recognizing where they are with finances, would a similarly sized rented room in a different friend's house be, you know, doable? Um, Just something to think about, because I do think it's hard. People don't often don't fundamentally change like their living habits once they're settled. And maybe there's something going on in roommates life where it's just impossible for them to change right now. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but and also he's just kind of insensitive, it sounds like. Right, right. And and looking around, even just telling yourself whether it's six months or a year or a year and a half, like I will be in a different situation could make you feel not so powerless, you know, in the moment. 
Right. And I think it will be helpful to think of what you have to go through now in the short term as just damage control and like harm reduction, right? Which are not really terms that are normally applied to stuff like the dishes. But to just think of um, like if you haven't really talked to him about it um, or you've just sort of like cleaned the whole house, like I think you should try like if you are cleaning to say, hey, uh, right now I'm cleaning out the bathroom. Will you please take out the trash? Like make a direct request. Right. uh, hopefully his response to that will not be like, no, fuck off. Um, or right. talk to him about the dishes. Like, say, I, I would love to ask that you not leave your dishes in the sink for weeks at a time. Can we agree that there's some sort of time limit to how long you can leave your dishes in? Like, like make those requests. You don't say that you've done it repeatedly and nothing's happened. It's possible you've already tried that. But um, I, I wonder if that sort of sense of it's his house, I'm just living here, has maybe prevented you from speaking up. Um, if he says don't do the laundry, you know, because of the bill, I think you can push back against that idea. You don't have to yeah, just, absolutely. you know, just because he owns the place does not mean that uh, he can tell you not to do laundry. Um, but, yeah, it, it sounds really unpleasant. And um, I think your best bet's going to be to get out of there. And your friendship is probably, you know, different now from what it was before. Right. I mean, in this case, it's one of those things where moving out could actually help you preserve some kind of friendship or relationship, if that's what you want. It's okay if it's mm-hmm. not, you know, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it could also be the healthiest thing for their friendship. All right. I'm uh, already upset that I asked you to read that letter because that means I have to read the subject line of the next one. <laughs> and and I, the reason I didn't change it was because I felt like the subject exemplified an attitude in the letter that is worth addressing. But Absolutely. I would just like to register a formal complaint at having to say this phrase. The subject is... Flaccid peen. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have never had the best sex life. He is much more conservative and frankly boring. I love him for who he is, so much more than sex, so I've been fairly satisfied with our bedroom life thus far. Lately, he can't even get it up. It's beyond frustrating. And to make matters worse, he gets so embarrassed that he completely neglects my needs and usually retreats to solitude. We are both in our 30s, physically fit, and otherwise well-attuned to each other. Do you have any suggestions here? I've tried talking, going longer periods of time without sex, and forget about being kinkier. I'm certain it scared him. So, you know, there's plenty of questions like this that I get, uh, you know, the answer to which generally is always some combination of talk to each other, be really honest about your, you know, libido levels and what it is that you're interested in, try to find a compromise, etc. And all those things are called for. But I think the thing that I noticed the most about this letter was just the contempt that comes through uh, about their husband. like. To just open with a subject line like flaccid peen, um, to go from, frankly, he's boring. I love him, um, but now he can't even get it up. Like, that's not to say that there aren't ways in which your husband could be responding differently and better. But I got to say, if, like, I was having issues with, like, being present and performing sexually and I got a whiff of this attitude— I would probably want to retreat into solitude too. Like it's just there's 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 a lot of harsh contempt here, and and I can see why that is not creating an environment where your husband feels super comfortable talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and of course, we don't know what letter writer has said to their husband, right? So mm-hmm. um, this could be just be venting, you know? Which, right. Uh, and I understand being frustrated, especially if. 
you know, I also, I also understand the frustration given that he won't talk about it. Um, and I do realize it's, it's hard and it's embarrassing and all of that, but that he kind of shuts down and sort of doesn't acknowledge their needs, you know, also makes it a bigger issue than the sex itself. Right. Right. Um, that, that sort of shows, I don't, you know, not to like, I don't really think it's about sides, but I could see you could read contempt into both sides here, given what we know. Um, that's really hard because um, you're not really starting then from a point of, you know, a point where you feel comfortable being really honest and open and vulnerable about these things. Um, right. So like I had a bunch of questions because the letters are obviously abridged and I feel like there's a lot of info we don't get. Um, it's hard to know like what they've tried already, like in terms of talking even, um, how much have they talked about, you know, their se- respective sex drives and what the differences are. Um, and like, when have they tried talking about it? Like probably in the moments immediately after it didn't go well is not the best time to talk about these things. Um, it, it, I think that would be like the hardest possible time to talk about it. So, you know, I, I guess I wondered what those conversations looked like and if mm-hmm. the husband realized what a big deal this actually is to the letter writer. Um, so... Right. Yeah, I, I think part of what's challenging about something like this is these these two got married, at least with on the letter writer's side, a real awareness that they don't have a very strong sexual connection. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, uh, it, it's not surprising when then that results in a frustrating sex life. And, and that bit about, I love him for who he is more than sex, so it's been okay mm-hmm. until now. Because I think a lot of times people think sex is one of the less important things in a long-term romantic relationship. So... As long as it's kind of bearable, it's fine to not really discuss it, and I'm sure it'll be okay because hmm. it would be shallow or, you know, whatever to to talk or care too much about sex because I love them. But sex is, uh, for many, many, like most couples, it is mm-hmm. a big deal, and it's part yeah. of how you express intimacy and stay close to one another. Um, and so I think sometimes we underestimate at the outset of a relationship how big a deal a sexual mismatch is going to be and how usually if there's a mismatch at the beginning— the gulf between the two of you is going to get wider with time unless you are really actively like talking and working towards compromise and and getting to know one another better. Um, And so, you know, some of this makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. If you married someone that you thought of as not only sexually conservative, but sexually boring, Mm -hmm. um, I understand why you're having a problem now. Like that's, that was a difficult situation that you married into. Um, so certainly there's the performance issue, but there's also the issue of um, it sounds like you would like to be a lot kinkier and that terrifies mm-hmm. him. Um, and it sounds like you're really frustrated with the ways in which his tastes don't align with yours. And you two are going to have to have some real challenging conversations about what that does and doesn't look like. And part of what you'll have to do is if that's just who your husband is, um, figure out how you can accept that. Um, Like it may or may not be that you guys are able to address like mechanics of getting and maintaining an erection, but uh, that's not necessarily going to turn him into a wildly enthusiastic, high libido kinkster. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't think that's the husband you're ever going to have in him. So, you know, you'll want to figure out, am I okay with that? Um, I know I want to be okay with that. I want to think of myself as just being able to love somebody despite a, a difference in sex drives. Um, but it, it, it kind of sounds like it's hard for you to accept that. And, and you wish you could not only um, change the, like the issues of flaccidity 
uh, but that you wish you could find a way to like turn a key that would unlock the secret kinkster in your husband. And I think that's something you're probably going to want and need to reevaluate. Absolutely. I noticed that the letter writer says they're otherwise well attuned, which is a good thing, if true, because that suggests to me that you are used to talking about some things, even if you're not used mm-hmm. to talking about this. Um, and maybe there is a way to sort of use whatever whatever communication patterns you have that are currently working in other areas to sort of introduce this topic and really um, talk about it. You know, another thing I thought about was just maybe a sexual health counselor, um, because there are people who specialize in that, of course, and they'll work with you individually or they'll work with you together. Um, but I think particularly if there's no medical issue, um, and I, it wasn't clear whether there is or whether the husband has maybe been checked, but you know, if there's no obvious medical cause, if it's like an underlying emotional or psychological like or relationship issue, to me, it just seems like an obvious place to start with a therapist, um, whether a regular therapist or like sexual therapist um, separately or together, like whatever the husband's open to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even if he won't go at first, I just think talking to somebody could maybe also help the writer uh, because this is obviously causing the writer a great deal of stress and, you know, trouble with sex isn't just trouble with sex if it's bleeding into other areas of your relationship. Um, And it's hard to deal with if you feel like your needs aren't being acknowledged or met. Um, So, you know, I think there's room for both of them there to maybe find support from a a professional with experience in this area. Um, But yeah, and of course I was thinking like there's lots of ways to enjoy one another and be intimate like without a penis so many ways um right i don't yeah. know it's not clear to me how much they've talked about those ways um you know if they could talk about some of those possibilities again maybe by the light of day uh and try new things or i don't know like pick out some toys together i just think it's possible that like taking that off the table even entirely for a bit while you pursue like a satisfying sex life through other means like maybe that would right. take some of the pressure off of him uh and make right. it a little easier to talk about yeah, so I, I, I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I, I think I, like, opened my response being a little bit hard on the letter writer. And I also want to acknowledge, like, your needs and frustrations matter. And, of course, it's hard and frustrating when your partner, like, walks away from sex and shuts down. Um, right. And I, I totally understand where you're coming from in that. And I think it makes total sense that you feel that way. So in addition to the kind of conversation of, like, husband, how are you? How does this feel? Obviously, like, you feel... Um, like you want to shut down, like, let's talk about that. But then also like, hey, in the meantime, um, as a sexual person who wants to share my sex life with you, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, like, and then that's where you talk about like, do you want your husband to like be with you while you get off by yourself? Do you want him to go down on you? Do you want him to use toys with you? Like, there are a lot of ways for you guys to have a sexual connection that's not just like filling in around the edges until his like dick gets back on schedule right. um, that are not like lesser substitutes or like, okay, well, you're defective now, so we'll do this other stuff to make up for it until you get back to normal. Like, that's not, I think, a healthy or a helpful way to look at it, but to talk about, like, you know, there are many, many ways to have sex. Mostly what I want is for you, my husband, to be a part of what it looks like or part of what it's like when I 
like have sex, whatever that looks like for the two of you. So while you are also exploring how he's doing, what's going on, possibly getting checked out by a doctor, uh, you know, just I feel like I should throw that out there as a recommendation. Um, Sure. Because even if you are physically fit, you can still sometimes have health issues. uh, Right. There could be an underlying cause. Exactly. Yeah. To also just say like. Yeah, to not to not make sex this thing of okay, we're gonna try to have standard issue, uh, whatever kind of like penetrative sex. I, I imagine they're kind of going for where he gets embarrassed and leaves, and yeah. then when that fails, we will resort to a backup to say, no, here's what I want right now that does not involve your dick. Can mm-hmm. we do that? Right, um, right, and it's not like less than it is still a means of being together, being close, you know, having a connection. Um, yeah, I, no, I think that would definitely be a good way forward if they can, you know, if they can do that together. Yep. Yeah, but, you know, good luck. It is it is difficult and tricky. And I think the fact that you guys are well attuned otherwise um, will probably help you. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it will be a combination of compromise, acceptance, talking, pushing past. You know, if he just tries to, like, run out of the room and not talk to you um, to sort of gently say, you know, if right now you're overwhelmed, we can put a pin in this. But this mm-hmm. is not a conversation that we can avoid having forever. Um, exactly. Because if we avoid it, you know, our connection, our shared intimacy will wither and die. And I don't want that. Yeah. And I know you already said this, but just to reiterate, like it is not like shallow or wrong to care about this and care deeply. There's right. there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you love the person any less. It doesn't mean you don't appreciate them as a whole person. Obviously, you know, there are many, many aspects to a marriage and this is just one of them. But um, just in, I just sensed a little bit of like, almost like the letter writer was beating themselves up too for like, I don't know, for caring about this or being frustrated. And I think it's okay to acknowledge those feelings. Obviously, you want to do so in like the kindest, most empathetic way you can when you talk about it with your partner. But it is legitimate and right, you know, to care about this and talk about what you need. So we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right. Subject of this is just, I caused my daughter to make a false accusation. Dear Prudence... Last year, my daughter received a failing grade in school. I'm not one to overreact to that, but my mother-in-law surely would have. I told my daughter her grandparents must not find out, and that if they asked about her report card to change the subject quickly. Not long after that, my daughter said her grandfather molested her, and that her grandmother knew and let it happen. I was shocked, but I've always thought that children should be believed about such things, thus I took her seriously and banned them from seeing her. My husband didn't believe any of it and still sees his parents alone. This has affected our marriage badly. Recently, my daughter told me that she made it up so she wouldn't have to see her grandparents and face questions about her grades. She wants to see them again. I did have doubts about her story, but I never connected it to the grade issue. I now realize that I caused this and feel absolutely awful. How can I even begin to repair the damage? This is maybe the thorniest letter I've ever addressed, by the way. So sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. Let's just acknowledge that this is a big, incredibly complicated sad story it is and you know of course i understand why the letter writer feels bad about the pain that was caused uh i don't think anyone has a choice but to believe their child when they come to them with something like this um 
I know it's terrible to think about too, but you know, before I, I, I do want to get to the point where she says she's sure her daughter made it up now, but you know, it is also possible, I guess, that a child could see the strife within the family resulting from something like this and then feel guilty and change the story, even if it's actually the truth. So I guess I wanted to acknowledge up front that we don't really know for sure what happened from this letter. I mean, would you generally right. agree with that? Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's uh, there's so many things that are coming to mind all at once. But yes, I think number yeah. one is um, I think it's really important to take your daughter to see a therapist. Yeah. Right now, um, yeah. because regardless of what happened, either your daughter was so terrified of the idea of her grandparents finding out that she had failed a class in school and felt so much pressure from you to lie about it um, mm-hmm. that she made this up, which is distressing and merits therapeutic attention. It's a or, big red flag. Yeah. Or she was molested. And mm-hmm. feels so uncomfortable at the prospect of cause, you know, she she sees that it's caused trouble in your marriage. She's seen that her own father apparently doesn't believe her and is seeing yeah. his parents um, and is trying to take it back so that things can go, quote unquote, back to normal. Um, and so I think, uh, uh, you know, the most important thing for you to do right now is to tell your daughter that you love her, that you're here for her, that you want to know what's going on with her, that she is not in trouble, that you are not taking her to a therapist to punish her or to um, make her do something that she doesn't want to do, um, but that you want and need to know more about what's been going on with her internally and emotionally over the last few months, because regardless of what happened, you are missing an important part of the story and you need to listen and make it really clear that you are available you are not going to overreact. You are not going to jump to conclusions. You are not going to try to fill in part of the story for her. And you're not going to, you know, go ahead and make a big unilateral decision. Like, I do think um, it is right that you feel very bad about the pressure that you put on your daughter. I don't want right. to, like, make you beat yourself up excessively. But what mm-hmm. you did was really not okay. Um, you say, I'm not one to overreact to that. But you did, in fact, overreact that you decided that it would be so unacceptable for your mother-in-law to get upset that you asked your child to lie to her. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. That's bad parenting. I'm not trying to tell you that you're a bad parent, but that was a bad act. That was wrong. Absolutely. Um, You you put your daughter in a situation where she felt overwhelmed, um, like she had done something so unforgivable by getting a failing grade by struggling in school that mm-hmm. you, an adult, were asking her to lie to her own family. Um, and that, you know, implicitly that love and support within a family is really conditional based on performance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just wrong. So, you know, while you're at that therapist, I would say go see one of your own and kind of figure out why would I put my child in a position of managing my relationship with my mother-in-law? Why did I do yeah. that? And how I, can I work to make sure that I never do that again? Absolutely. I, I agree with that, like counseling for everybody. I thought it could also help the letter writer and the husband, uh, given the different ways that they sort of dealt with that. And again, we don't we don't know what happened. But, you know, if we're going to err on the side, again, of believing the child, which I think is a reasonable, good, important thing for parents to do. It, it probably means something that he didn't. Uh, and, you know, certainly it caused like strife in their marriage and in their family. Um, and that was one of the things that the letter writer was asking for advice on. And I don't see how you get past a lot of this without like professional help. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's possible too that family counseling that includes the grandparents, if they're at all open to it, could also help. I oh, think it says, I, I, I would say no to that. Just because we don't know whether or not uh, an act of abuse took place. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I think that is a, a good boundary. And this is this is about this this particular family unit and the boundaries they draw with others. Um, and I would say too, I just think it's worth addressing. Um, false accusations are quite rare. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, sometimes they do happen. And so you have to deal with that reality. Um, and rather than um, trying to overcorrect now by saying, obviously, this is the one true narrative, I think you need to do what you ought to have done in the first place, which is say, I'm here to listen to you. Uh, I, I, I trust you. I, I'm not looking for holes in your story, but I do want more information. And I'm going to take this really seriously. Like, you know, just going back to in the first place, you said, I believe children should be believed, but your only response to your daughter telling the story was to saying your grandparents can't see you anymore. Um, instead of... Um, like, how can we get you help and support? And How can we get you help? How yeah. can we get you to a therapist? I need to call the police and report something. Like that, mm-hmm. it, it, what you, you know, keeping your grandparents out of the house is not an appropriate response to... Uh, hearing the possibility that a fully grown adult has sexually abused a child. Um, and that's not to say that you should have like called 911 the moment your daughter told you, but there should have been a series of steps of therapy, investigation, um, corroboration, and eventually escalation. Like child sexual abuse is very, very serious. And if if you had found information that supported your daughter's story and if you had carefully examined the facts with her and you had genuine cause to believe that this had happened, your response was both too much and not enough. Um, so that's worth thinking about, like that that it was just, OK, well, we're not going to talk to your grandparents anymore, but your dad's going to go um, is a is a painful half response that was sort of harder, hardest on everybody. No, definitely. I. I do want to say too, like when I was thinking about like talking with the grandparents and potentially counseling, I guess I was going on. I, and I, now that I think about it, she couldn't possibly know for sure what had happened. I don't know that there's going to be any like proof presented that it didn't happen. But since her letter was the letter was about like, how do we move forward? How do we get past this pain? Um, you know, I'm actually not sure there's a clear way to do that, given the information that we have. Right. Well, there's you know, there's a lot that's clearly already here close to broken beyond the point of repair. Like mm-hmm. this this whole situation began because the letter writer believed that their mother-in-law would have done something so outrageous or over the top or egregious upon finding out that their daughter was having trouble in school that that was an unacceptable possibility. So, like, there are some broken relationships here to begin with. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. going to therapy um you know, seriously looking for where did I go wrong here? What was driving my behavior? How can I calmly, methodically, slowly, openly um, address the situation with truth and courage now um, instead of try to overreact in the other direction and close the door on it as quickly as possible? Um, mm-hmm. How do I own what's mine? How do I ask for what I need from my husband? How do I make sure that my daughter feels safe and like she can be honest with me and that I'm never, you know, part of what you'll get to do and you need to do is to sincerely apologize to your daughter for putting her in that position. Um, and not in a way that is like coming at her with a lot of overwhelming emotions, like I'm a monster, mm-hmm. I'm a bad mother, please forgive me. That's again, that's too much to put on your daughter. Um, right. But just to say, like your I daughter's was so not responsible wrong. for your atonement here. Yep. I was so yep. wrong to have asked you to lie to your grandmother. 
Um, I want to let you know that I am working on that in myself. That was too much pressure to put on you. Um, I apologize and I will not do that to you again. That's going to be really crucial. Um, Mm -hmm. And to just sort of slowly now do the follow-up work that you should have done before of going to therapy with your daughter, asking questions, um, making sure that she feels safe and heard and that you are addressing whatever underlying emotional issues are going on with her. Um, And then that should be your number one priority. Number two should be talking to your husband honestly. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, either... He thought his daughter was lying about his father molesting her and was like, eh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to keep calling my dad, um, right. which is deeply troubling. Or he thought there was a possibility his father had molested his own daughter and his response was, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I'm going to keep seeing my dad. Right. Like that was not a good response on his part. And you guys need to have some really serious conversations about why he did that and why whatever he thought might have been the truth, he did not pursue further investigation and careful attention and open, honest discussion further. Yeah. And then working on if it can be repaired, uh, his relationship with your daughter, um, I guess, would be the next would be part of that important step and figuring out what that looks like. You know, how does he need to talk to and apologize to her and, you know, atone and address address his choices? Um, And can their relationship be repaired? And I totally agree. I think those two like those two are are the top priorities and the things that, you know, as, as parents that that should be your focus right now. Yep. Yep. No, but this is hard. And I I, I know that there's a lot that's going to be feeling painful and you're going to want to beat yourself up uh, about. And I just also want to let you know, I'm really glad um, that you are trying to make this right and to do better. Um, And I think you will be able to, you know, make amends, make some things right, move on, be better for it, that whatever outcomes arise as a result of what's going on right now, it is better to be honest, to listen, um, and and to speak truthfully about what's going on in your family. I think that you are moving in a good and a necessary direction, and I wish you all the best, and I hope that we get to hear from you later um, about how things are and how your daughter's doing. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. All right. Let's... Just take a minute to shake some of that off and then a lot. talk to somebody who's in love with a lesbian. <laughs> this next letter, the subject is still in love. Dear Prudence, is it weird that I'm still in love with my ex-wife? She has, after four years of marriage, realized she's a lesbian. I'm a guy, so that caused some obvious logistical problems, and we're about to be divorced. The thing is, I still love her. Not that I've been perfect, and in fairness, I think she hasn't been perfect either, but at the end of the day, I didn't fall in love with her because we had sex. I love her because of who she is, kind, clever, always with a stash of popping candy in her purse. I'm not holding out hope we get back together, and I hope she's happy with her new girlfriend. A bit grudgingly, but I do. However, my friends and family say I'm not processing the breakup because I'm not angry or hateful about her. A little resentful sometimes— And a bit hurt the life I thought was great wasn't for her, but that's it. 
Eventually, I imagine absence will make the heart give up and move on. Just, I'm not heading into stalker territory or anything, am I? I just figure that while it sucks we broke up, getting angry because she likes women is like getting angry at a tornado. It might have screwed up stuff in my life, but it wasn't from malice. My first reaction is just, I'm sorry your friends are trying to get you to feel hateful toward anyone, like especially a person that you care about. Um, Four years of marriage, you can't just turn off all of your feelings immediately. It sounds like the letter writer knows this already, but just in case to back, you know, to back him up, like he's absolutely right that his ex-wife being lesbian is in no way something personal against him. Um, Of course, I understand his feelings about it. You know, you, you love someone, you had plans together, you thought you'd spend your lives together, but he's right not to hold it against her or think she did it on purpose or something. And Anyone trying to convince him to feel otherwise is not being a good friend, is not being supportive in what is a very difficult situation. Yeah, no. And also, like, for whatever it's worth, I found this letter very charming. Um, You sound like a really charming, fun person. And uh, I think that anyone who says anger is the best and most honest response you can have to this. And unless you have a lot of it, unless you produce a lot of it, you are hiding Mm -hmm. something and something is eventually going to pop up is not necessarily seeing the situation accurately. Um, You know, no, you don't have to be angrier with her than you are. Um, You certainly don't sound like you're stalking her. It doesn't sound, you didn't say anything like, I can't stop calling her or Mm -hmm. I am like constantly going out with her and her new girlfriend as a third wheel on their dates. Uh, So no, no, not at all. Um, You're, you're not doing anything wrong. And I think the one thing I would say is I I think it's wrong of your friends to encourage you to be really, really angry. um, If that's not something that's coming up for you, but it is okay to say you're more than a bit hurt, right? You Mm -hmm. say, I'm a little resentful sometimes and a bit hurt that the life I thought was great wasn't for her. Um, and again, that's not to say you need to go rend your clothing and you have to be devastated by this. Yeah. Um, but however sad you are about it, just because it's painful when somebody you really, really love and you thought we have a really good mutually satisfying relationship says, you know, this actually there's something missing for me here. Yeah. And this relationship, while wonderful in, in many meaningful ways, is not providing me with the things that I want and need. It's okay, even though you accept that there is not necessarily fault or deception on anyone's sides to just say, that hurts and I'm sad and I wish it were different. And I understand that it's not and I will be able to move on, but um, that feels deflating and painful to have learned that truth. Yeah, I was getting really upset with the friends. Like, they shouldn't be encouraging the letter writer to hate his ex-wife or wallow in bitterness. You know, that's not good for his mental health either, particularly if that's not how he honestly feels. Uh, They should be more concerned about his well-being than that. So that was like upsetting. You know, it's one thing if it were like 20 years and you were still deeply in love with your ex-wife and you were calling her all the time or whatever. But it doesn't, you know, that we're talking about a divorce that's just now being finalized. Um, Of course, the healthier thing would eventually be, I guess, to be in a place of acceptance uh, with it. But Honestly, like I'm not in the habit of handing out cookies to men for doing an okay thing, but it really sounds like the letter writers handled this painful situation like about as well as he could under the circumstances. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I I don't even think this is a cookies situation. I just think um, he has handled this divorce 
really well and really honestly. Yeah. And, and I would encourage you if your friends say you have to get angry to say, you know what I would really love from you is if you would ask me how I'm doing and let mm-hmm. me tell you about it and listen um, and maybe like go out to a movie with me or let me cry a little or take a walk or distract me or whatever. Um, yeah. But not to tell me that I am doing my divorce wrong because that just makes me feel isolated so and yeah. hurt. Yeah. No, you don't have to do that. You should push back against your friends. And good luck. I hope that the next person you go out with is, uh, you know, sexually attuned to you and romantically attuned to you and is super thrilled to be getting to be with you. Good luck. All right. So, uh, Nikki, in part because we had one of my more fraught letters earlier, Mm -hmm. I have uh, one of the easiest letters I think I've ever gotten that I'm really looking forward to answering very, very, very quickly. Would you please read it? Splitting rent. Dear Prudence. I am planning to find a new apartment with my boyfriend and his full-time kid. Neither of our present living situations are ideal, so we need a new place that's in our expensive area that's also in a good school district. We plan to get a two-bedroom apartment, one room for us and one for his kid. How would you advise we split rent? We both make about the same, and I can't find a definitive answer online. Half. Each of you should pay half. I, I was like, what's wrong with halvesies? Like, it's easy. I guess the fact they're writing suggests like halvesies doesn't seem right to them, but I, I think it seems pretty fair. You're planning on getting a two-bedroom apartment. You make the same amount of money. You're going to live together. Children can't pay rent. Pay half. Right. Like, the question, I guess, is if you're really uncomfortable with half, why are you uncomfortable? And do you need to interrogate that? But... Yeah, it doesn't seem fair to sort of break it down any other way. Again, assuming they really do make about the same amount of money. And it doesn't really matter what we think or what the internet says. I guess in the end, it's what they both want to do. Yeah, no, but I'm going to actually go out on a limb and answer this as definitively as I've ever answered a question. (laughs) The objective answer is half. No reasonable person is going to offer you any other answer. The definitive answer, the only answer, the one true answer is half. (laughs) Both of you pay half. We're done here. Moving on. Next letter. Subject, vacation. Dear Prudence, I only get two weeks paid vacation a year. My boyfriend gets six weeks. I don't really mind him going on trips without me. He likes camping. I like civilization. But his youngest sister just got engaged and announced she would be having a destination wedding. I don't want to go. It's a huge expense and hassle. I've already spent a week taking care of my parents this year and had to pay for major repairs on my car. I just want a week of sleeping and doing nothing before the holidays take over. My boyfriend says we have to go, but I think it is ridiculous. His family, including his sister, live an hour away. There's no earthly reason to fly halfway around the world to see people we see every Sunday. Can I just send him? I'm not close to his sister and honestly think she's spoiled rotten. She's still in school on her parents' dime and demands the princess package. I'd rather save some money and sleep for once, but he keeps saying we have to go. Is he right? Am I being selfish here? Nikki, I know this is not the point of the letter, but I really want to know what the princess package is because I want it. You deserve it, Mel. I just, whatever that is, whatever the princess package is, please give it to me. There's so much going on between the lines of this letter. Yeah. Um, I feel like ultimately, just given the facts that we have, it it sort of depends a lot on the actual money situation um, and possibly how serious the two of them are. I feel like uh, they're pretty serious if if they're seeing his family every week. Um, That's which another says they do. problem, uh, I think. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to that later. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
If you can't afford it, that is more than fair. And any reasonable person should understand that and be able to accept it. Or if it, if they have the means and it's deeply important to them that you are there, you know, maybe they could offer to help a bit. They don't have to. I'm saying they should at the very least understand if you legitimately cannot afford it. It wasn't clear to me whether that was the case or if they just didn't really want to go at all. Um and just reading between the lines, you know, it does, I don't want to, I don't want to make assumptions, but it sounds like they're from different, uh, like sort of financial backgrounds. And I know that can be fraught. Um, I am also just someone who's like generally stressed out by weddings. You know, I married into a wealthier family than the one I was raised in. I have very little paid vacation and extreme money anxiety. So I do, I do want to be sympathetic, but being part of someone's life means you sometimes do these things, even if you'd rather not. Um, so my question was really, can you afford it? And if you can, maybe it feels like something you just do. Um, and recognize, you know, your partner will do some unwanted things for you and yay, it all evens out. Everyone spends too much. Everyone feels put upon sometimes. Um, anyway, those are just my initial thoughts, given what we were told. I, I, I'm right there with you. Like, I think there's certainly a good argument to be made for not going. I also don't think there's like a slam dunk. No, you have to or no, mm -hmm. your boyfriend is in the wrong for asking this of you. This is just one of those many compromises that comes up in a long term relationship. And I have to imagine the money and the vacation would always be an issue, but it would be a lot less of an issue if it was a wedding of someone that you liked. Right. Like mm -hmm. really you know, the, the, the money and the vacation are, are real, but it's really, I don't like a sister and I already have to see her every week. Um, yeah. And that I think is also worth talking about because seeing somebody right. else's family every Sunday is a lot. Like I'm quite close with my family and I do not see them all every Sunday. Um, so if, if a part of the conversation you need to have is I don't want to spend every Sunday with your family, I think you should bring that up. I think that's a conversation you should have. And you can absolutely bargain down to, I will come with you once a month uh, or even a little bit less than that, because that's, that's a lot of family time. That's like, yeah, every Sunday. frankly, that's like the number one issue to me in this letter. Oh yeah. That is too much. I mean, you just need some space. Um, yeah. And when you see someone that often too, there is no escaping the pressure. So it's really not just getting this from like the boyfriend. You're also, I guess, getting it from the boyfriend's entire family. You know, they're excited about the wedding and they're talking about it and assuming that you'll be there. So like it's this weekly stressor in addition to just the stress of not having enough space in your own relationship. Um, so nice. Yeah. That was a, that was a very like deft advice column -y thing to say. I like that. Oh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, but I would say, so you're absolutely fine if you want to say, I have one week left of vacation a year and right. I've already spent a lot of money. I'm not going to go. Um, mm -hmm. And, be, you know, be prepared for like the fallout of like uh, that might hurt your boyfriend a lot. Um, it's also not ridiculous, right? Like I think destination no. weddings are probably excessively over the top unless everyone involved is fabulously wealthy. And even then, mm -hmm. it's still over the top. Um, I can totally understand not wanting to attend one, especially somebody you don't like. But it is not ridiculous that your boyfriend wants you to go with him to his sister's wedding. It is no, inconvenient. Not. It's something you don't want to do. But he's not stupid for asking. He's not totally out of line. It doesn't mean you have to do it. I just think that that will be helpful for you as you guys have that conversation is it's it's not ridiculous. You just don't like her. Yeah, it's a fundamentally reasonable request, I guess, too. Like I and maybe this is just like my own background or biases coming into it. But um, 
I don't know what her actual financial situation is, what, what their financial situation is. So it could be too that the family and or the boyfriend mm-hmm. are being a little bit insensitive about the actual means. Like, can she actually get there? I mean, I don't know. Um, right. So that was just a question I had. And I think it's probably maybe even the most important one. Like, can you get there without it being a huge burden? Right. Um, if the answer is no, that's totally fair. And they should be respectful of that too. And then not pressure you, even if they're a little bit hurt. Um, people only have as much money on hand as they have, you know, and that's yeah. not a personal failing on the letter writer's part. That's just, a, that's just the situation. Yep. Yeah. And so I would say neither of you are being outrageously unreasonable, but it, you know, if you want and need to hold that line and say, I have one more week of vacation, I've already used up a lot of it taking care of my parents. I love you. I'm glad you're going to get to go to your sister's wedding, but I'm just not going to go. Um, and, you know, if his response to that is we have to, you just get to say, no, I don't. I'm choosing not to go. And this may be a big fight. He may feel really mm-hmm. hurt. Um, and you may just have to let him feel really hurt and figure out how you guys want to like navigate your relationship to his family. Because frankly, it sounds like he wants his relationship with his family to be extremely close to often yeah. go and do things with them. And yours would like you'd, you'd like it to be different. And that is probably yeah. going to continue to be a point of contention. You guys are just going to have to talk about it. Um, right. But yeah, right. It, it sounds like you're already pretty committed to not going. And I think at that point, you just need to say, here's why I'm not going to go. And we can talk about how it makes you feel, um, mm-hmm. but uh, that's that's it. You know, you can't force me on a plane. Um, so we're just going to have to deal with what this means for us instead. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, the boyfriend will accept that and not make it like a referendum on how much the letter writer cares about him. Um, you know, again, given the situation, there's, I guess, some facts we don't know, but it seems unreasonable to sort of make that into, I guess, into a bigger deal than it is, you know? Yeah. Um, just accepting like where the letter writer is really at, what is actually within their means um, and, and what they want to do. It's important. You know, how they want to spend their one remaining week of vacation is important. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we did it. We I was going to say solved everyone's problems, but some of these problems were really big. So I will just say we addressed everyone's questions. We talked um, about them. Yeah, we talked. We talked. Um Nikki, thank you so much. You brought such a lovely, deft touch to all of these answers. And I wish that I was always as reasonable as you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show? Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. 
Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.